Hi, this is Eric Y. Chen, host of the Y Factor podcast, where I interview entrepreneurs, CEOs, and individuals on how they got started in their business. I take a deep dive to understand their journey through life, uncovering their purpose, and most importantly, discussing their whys. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Hey everybody, this is Eric White Chan of Y Factor Podcast. This is a new recording for the year 2020. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to our previous episodes that have been going on for season two. I am excited to have our guest, John Tai of Hatch Duo. I'd uh, love to have you introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks Eric for having me. It's an honor to be here. Uh, so I'm John Tai. I am the co-founder and owner of Hatch Duo. It's an industrial design firm here in Silicon Valley, the Bay Area. And I also run a watch company called Aggregate Watches, um, co-founder of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to dive into both businesses because, you know, you and I were able to catch up and have and understand your story of how everything has developed over time, your work experience and, and how you got here. You know, the primary point of the show is for people to figure out what their why is and, and what motivates them and how their path and journey has shaped them to where they are today. And so I'd love to dive into that. So you tell me, you know, just basically how you, you got started in terms of your career, your background, like sure. what is it that you did before? Yeah. So uh, my background is deep in industrial design. Growing up, I was an Asian kid who loved art, who loved to draw and paint. And um, lucky enough for me, uh, my parents were not that stereotypical and they did encourage me to pursue that if that's my passion. So I took a lot of drawing, painting classes all the way through high school. And then actually for college, I went to UCI undeclared and I ended up majoring in studio art. So very untraditional painting, Love that sculpture, love that engine. Just through that, I think graduating and realizing, you know, I have to figure out a way to make money now and survive because I can't move back home. You know, what am I going to do? Right. And so I actually started to research ways where I could monetize my love of art mm-hmm. and figure out ways to, you know, actually turn that into a career. And um, for me, um, that finding was industrial design. I love collecting sneakers and Jordans, you know, throughout high school. And so I researched, you know, like, how do you design these shoes? And I found uh, Tinker Hatfield, which is um, an architect who then turned into a shoe designer, who then basically, you know, was part of this field called industrial design. And uh, I found out there's some classes near me when I was living in Irvine. And so I started to take some classes in Pasadena Art Center at night. And I just fell in love with it. I was drawing um, cars, I was drawing products and stuff. And I just didn't realize that you could make a career out of it. So fast forward, you know, graduated UCI. I was planning to attend Art Center in Mm. Pasadena. And then my mom actually was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. And so that was kind of an emotional time. And I figured it'd probably be best to just move back home in the Bay Area to just be close with family and to just, you know, help support that. And so luckily right now she's better. um, And and it's all your mission. Yeah. um, But I ended up attending Academy of Art. Uh, in San Francisco. So was there was there a point when you decided to come back to the Bay Area that you also needed to get some type of like part-time job or you were able to still just at least be close to home to family or be at home with your family and then continue with pursuing your, your art? 
Yeah, luckily, um, you know, took out some school loans and, you know, didn't live in San Francisco, lived in the East Bay, actually, because uh, rent was just cheaper there. Oh, yeah, astronomical. Yeah, I pretty much just went into school like right away mm-hmm. um, and, and just took out a big, fat school loan to do that. And then he says is uh, Academy of Arts. Academy of Art. Okay. Yeah. So here's the question, you know, that I wonder, it's like for people who already finished getting their bachelor's degree and then already having a, you know, appearing a student that then going into the Academy of Arts, because can't students already like from high school go to Academy of Arts, mm-hmm. right? So did you feel like you were spending more time to backtrack or you should have just gone to the Academy of Arts in the first place? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, thankfully, like the first undergrad, like my parents supported that. Um, so I was lucky enough to, you know, benefit from that. But then, yeah, the second term, I was like, no, this is you. Like, if you couldn't figure out, you know, the first time and to have to go back to get another bachelor's, that was something that, yeah, like, you know, a few questions from relatives, like, well, why don't you just get a master's somewhere else, you know? But like me having researched design and understanding what the career was, it's like, you know, it's a lot of hands-on stuff. You can't just, you know, go take school for two years and say that you're, you know, Mm -hmm. master's at it. And so, um, yeah, it was a hard pill to swallow, but I knew that it'd be worth it. And, you know, it was something that I wanted to do anyway. So yeah, it was just like a chapter that I had to, to go through. So then you came back to the Bay and then you were doing school at Academy Arts. And then what happens next? Yeah, so doing school there, my first product design class, I was doing this project. It was for like a brain controller for the Wii at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of dating myself, but like that was like when the Wii came out. And for our finals, the really cool thing about Academy of Art is they have professionals come in to like review our, our final semester projects. And a designer from this company called Neurosky here in San Jose came in to just like see, you know, what the student work was like. And they loved my final project and offered me an internship Mm. after that. And so that kind of just got me started on my first ID internship, essentially. So over there, I was doing some really cool stuff, designing um, EEG brain controller devices. Uh, What's EEG? EEG is electroencephalography, if hopefully I'm saying that right. Um, What it is, is it's a technology, they use it in the medical field where you're basically measuring brain waves and transmitting that into data to either, you know, use it as data or control, you know, interfaces. And so you you started with an internship with basically a a company Mm -hmm. in the Bay Area. And then how long was that? And did that shape into like a career path? Yeah. Yeah. So that was a three month internship, went back to school after that. But having tasted, you know, how much you can learn from real work experience, Mm -hmm. I was like addicted, right? Like I wanted the next internship right away. And so I think within the next semester, I finished another semester of classes. And then right away, I got another internship, a consultancy called Whipsaw here in San Jose, San Francisco now. Um, World-renowned design firm, just like one of those dream internships for an industrial designer where I studied under Dan Hardin and, you know, just got my hands dirty, just doing everything from supporting other designers, concepting, carving foam for models, prototyping, all that kind of stuff. So where was the the turning point of you, you know, realizing the difference between like art and becoming an industrial designer and that being the career path that you wanted to take? Yeah. So I think... Like once I started design school, 
and using art as a, a means as a process to get to an end goal you kind of realize that like art is like very self-expression you know whereas design is you're serving you know a need or you're serving a, a client or a user and i think like when it relates to business uh that's where you can really thrive because in business you're finding a need and then you're serving that and so i think like design process and just like understanding what it's a creative strategy mm-hmm. to target people right and so um i think there is just like a good marriage of like okay i love drawing and stuff but i also need to eventually provide for like a family yeah i'm like thinking about this yeah and I, i think it's it's basically you know everyone's search for a balance of some type of you know drone work that you know people feel when they're in corporate yeah and then having a creative outlet um whether it is some art typography painting well you know singing just some type of creative part of yourself right that yeah. self-expression yeah and so you found that id design is great balance for both yeah absolutely yeah uh it, it definitely was one of those things where and i think like growing up like i just i was lucky enough to have parents that were very supportive to say yeah follow your passion i mean it's a very cliche thing to, to say is like follow your passion how am i supposed to know my passion really at the end of the when day when you're like sketching shoes yeah but i think like id as a career allows me to be very curious mm-hmm. right and i think curiosity is what eventually leads to passion and so because design allowed me to like get my hands into shoes into cars into uh phones and and speakers and headphones and things like that of that nature it just allowed me to just experience a lot of different things has there ever been a point where say even your parents had faltered in in their belief in you and and maybe said you should go and you know get a finance job or something or just do this on the side or they 100% like we believe in you go go at it just keep keep going and you'll figure it out yeah so i think that's a great question i think that's a two part answer where in the beginning no they were very supportive as long as i could go work for a design company you know being a good design employee that was like very good but i think there was a slight debating turning point was when i decided to be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. where at the time and i can get into it when i decided 3 years ago to just be self employed my wife and i we were expecting our first child and so there was a lot of like light talks of my dad very lightly saying like are you sure you know you, you're going to do this you have great health benefits a uh, great salary you know well, you're about to have a kid like this is real stuff you can't just be going off and you know taking around all these risks taking all these risks you know you can do that later when when everything's stable and I'm, in my head i'm just like well when is later when is stable really going to happen and so uh, yeah there is like some light debate there but i think ultimately they understood that they can't really change my mind yeah. so let's uh let's let's dive into that right you you basically got to a point you know before you decided to pivot to becoming a full-time entrepreneur you and i we discussed you got basically had a very extensive career opportunity and was it with is it Dan Harden you said is is your was the mentor so Dan Harden was a, was a good mentor uh, during that time at, at Whipsaw and I think all my bosses throughout the time um my time at Y Studios why really inspirational to also like what I'm starting now with like my own design firm here but yeah like through I I worked you know at design firms like that I eventually got into a startup called Solar Public which was kind of a break off of Monster Monster Cable and Beats by Trey to learn about branding and then yeah I eventually got recruited by Robert Perra at 
ubiquity networks. And I think that was a real turning point for me. When I initially met with him, it was a funny story because um, at the time, Soul Public was getting acquired. It was this kind of uneasy turning point of like, okay, should I stay at the job? If we get acquired, is my job still going to be there? So of course I was interviewing. At the time, um, I got an email from this person, Robert Perrin, just an email. And it opened and it's like, hey, I saw your portfolio. Let's let's go get lunch. I hadn't applied. I don't know who he is. For the audience, who who is Robert Perrin? So Robert Perrin is a tech billionaire who also happens to own the Memphis Grizzlies. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So a super rich and successful person emails you out of nowhere. Yeah. And asks you to go to lunch. Asked me to go to lunch. And of course, me being pretty ignorant, I was like, who is this guy? So I Google Robert Perra. And then to my surprise, I was like, oh my gosh, he owns the Memphis Grizzlies, right? And so um, I was like, yeah, let's go get lunch, right? And, um, you know, fast forward through that lunch, basically, I got an offer uh, that day that I couldn't refuse, which was to basically be kind of like his Jonathan Ives, essentially, right? Like he wanted to build out a consumer division for Ubiquity, where um, not only would I be an industrial designer, I could you know, work with, across multidisciplinary teams within his company to basically create just new stuff within, within the brand. Um, that was really cool. What do you think was the lead up point to even have an opportunity like a billionaire to reach out to you, right? Because he says he saw your portfolio, right? And I think this is something even a lot of people who are in the arts or they're trying to do creatives, you know, how long that take you feel like to have like a portfolio of work that you know you were proud of or you thought that it could get you to that level yeah great question i think i think it's a number of things uh meeting him i feel like was partly luck but you know the opportunity arose i think because i think early in my career i chose the path of consulting which was very different than going in-house right like i have really great friends talented friends who became in-house designers, but I think a lot of their portfolio is like the same thing. For me, I chose to take maybe a little bit lesser pay, but for a diversity of products. And so just, you know, that first couple of years of, of being out of school, I was just able to pump out a bunch of, of diverse amount of, of work of like Activision, Sonos, um, you know, big, big name brands like that. And I think um, that just allowed me to put stuff up there um, that I was out of and that I had impact on and and then I think just like meeting people too because I think part of it was he found my name because I was on a trip in Taiwan with uh, my now wife for a wedding we had met someone who also was you know in hardware mm -hmm. and we just got to talking and it turned out we knew the same person at the same factory and then he was like wait you're an industrial designer like yeah and he's like let me just get your card so he actually was the one who took my card and gave it to Robert. And then that's how, like, I think they like looked me up. Power of so, networking yeah. right there, <laughs> especially at a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> Any, every interaction could lead into huge opportunity. Yeah. So let's fast forward. You basically, you, you're working for this guy. What is it like working for, for someone in, in that level? Yeah, it's, it's amazing, but it's also probably one of the most challenging things I've had to do in my career. I think, you know, I've worked directly for owners of companies before, but that's very small scale compared to this. This is a public company, 600, 700 people. He has shareholders to answer to, and I have to answer to him directly. There's no middle 
managers in between. So if he's pleased, I can feel that. If he's unhappy, I can also feel that, right? Mm -hmm. But to his credit, I think it was really inspirational to work for him to just be able to see how he works and how someone that young, basically you can understand like why he's a billionaire. Like he, he just has that, that tenacity and, and drive almost like how you see some athletes have of just how he drives his teams. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. That was my first time on, on Slack. And so my Slack would blow up all the time. You know, this is someone who is managing teams, you know, in Taiwan, in, you know, in Latvia and so, and, and in Silicon Valley. And so this guy doesn't sleep. And so mm-hmm. if he doesn't sleep and you're answering him, you don't sleep either. So do you, do you feel like, you know, in comparing him to other bosses that you've had, like, what is the biggest difference that you could tell of what makes him that much more successful than other people that you've worked for? Is it just the guy just doesn't sleep or? I think it's just this laser focus to like where he wants to be and to really just set high aspirational goals that he probably believes he can hit and just driving towards it, like without compromise, Uh, whether that means, you know, and if you don't fit in that plan, then you don't fit in with that plan. Um, so what, what were your learnings from, from him? Like, have you integrated just even being around someone like that into your current business? Yeah, I think being around him and, and just seeing the people around him too. Like, it's funny, like, I, you know, I would come into the office and Rick Fox would be there in my office, like sitting next to me one day and just, you know, so just to understand like the the level of of his circle and his network and the way they think and the way they think large and that it's possible i think that was pretty influential to like setting me off in my own entrepreneurial uh, journey as well so let's talk about that you mentioned it earlier here in the episode that this was the junction point of you and your wife are pregnant and you decided to leave to pursue your own thing yeah so what was the thought process leading up to that yeah it was a complex one so i have this great career great career path within ubiquity networks where i was basically leading a lot of the design programs there coming out with a lot of consumer products but at the same time my wife and i were were at a stage where we're like hey we kind of want to start a family so obviously that was like the very stable path and in my head maybe as the designer or the artist in me started to feel a little cagey of like okay like if that's, if that's like the path and it's like so predictable, like what else is there to do? Right. And so, and part of it too, was influenced by myself. Robert had a few friends that were also entrepreneurs, like a fitness circle that I was um, starting to do some side projects with. So he was introducing me to some really cool people. And so one of those people uh, who's now a really good friend of mine, Derwood, he was an MBA scout for, for the Grizzlies and he was in the process of starting his own equipment brand for uh, basketball players. And so I helped kind of like design some stuff for him and, and, and uh, get him started on that. And just like kind of watching that journey, I was like, man, like, like this is stuff like I can do like myself too also. So yeah, just kind of that, that itch and that seed just got planted there of like, okay, I'm doing this for a bunch of other people and, and I'm happy for them and I'm happy to see their success, but like, why am I not doing it for myself? Mm-hmm. And so that itch kind of started, I think in like 2016 and, you know, and then as we got pregnant, it just like shit got real, honestly. And it was like, okay, if I don't quit now, when am I going to quit? Because 
it's very easy. It's like once you have the family and the kids, you got to get the house, you got to keep the salary and you got to worry about not getting laid off. And so this was like the only time for me to like just take the plunge. You know, as ironic as it sounds, it just sounds like so stupid actually if you look back on it. But if I didn't take that risk now, I probably at this point, I have two kids now, I probably wouldn't be taking that risk. So you feel it now like if you were to like start a family, didn't make that jump yet, you're like, yeah, yeah, it's it's the right move to stay in a, in a career path. Yeah. I, I think it's it's a tough decision, especially for people who are gonna be at the stage of you know, even planning to have a kid that they won't look that far of making that leap. So I, you know, for me, it's, it's very surprising for you to be able to just decide to take that risk and, and say, yeah, this is, this is the time because what, there's no perfect time. Yeah. There's, there's definitely no perfect time. And I just think like it was the curiosity in me too. It was just like, well, you know, like, what's the worst that could happen, right? You know, what's the worst that could happen right now? So, so the worst thing that could happen, what do you think is what? You give yourself a timeline, three months, six months, one year, and then go back to a full-time job or? Yeah, I mean, how is that um, laid out? I mean, I guess like, I don't want to sound uh, overconfident, but I, I felt pretty competent in my skills and that I would be in demand if this didn't work out in terms of design, being a designer, right? For some, some in-house company, you know? And so I just felt like, you know, let's just sell off those RSUs and have that be my runway, you know, for a year or two. And let's just see what happens if we can't make a little bit of money to like, you know, start get this machine going. And so, yeah, that's pretty much what I did. I, I basically sold a bunch of like my stock and savings and, and made that my, my runway for my wife and I. And obviously we had to make some lifestyle changes as well. We downsized into a, an apartment near Santa Clara University. So we're living next to a bunch of college kids with our with our newborn baby. Um, my wife took on extra hours at her um, at her job. So you know, definitely, I couldn't have done it without her too. It was a team effort. And then I also partnered with someone, right? So Mike, my partner, you know, kind of shared a little bit of that business burden with me as well. So yeah, and really quickly to touch upon going into a partnership, it seems like well, obviously, since it's been what three three four years now. What do you think about jumping into partnerships? I feel like a lot of people, when they're starting off, they're like, yeah, like I can do it on my own or yeah, they want to hedge their risk by working with someone else or work with their friends. What would your advice be on that? Yeah, I think it's different for everyone. You know, there's, there's one camp that says like, you know, the ship that doesn't sail is the partnership. And then there's the other camp, which I'm in, which is, you know, you're only better together. And I think like, for me, it was one of those things where, you know, I'm about to do something so risky. You know, I have a child on the way, you know, probably better to hedge my bets to have someone with me to help, you know, cover me and, and you know, look out for angles that, you know, perspectives that I can't see. And so for us, it's worked really well. It doesn't come without its challenges. I mean, Mike will tell you how many times we've fought, you know, in the past, like, you know, almost four years now. But I think, Ultimately, you need to go through that. It's like marriage, right? Like it's never perfect, but I think if you have good communication, you can get through it and you are aligned with the same end goal, then it works really well. So a lot of the business fundamentals will, will say, yeah, if you're going to partner up with someone, it should be someone who has a completely different skill set. So do you guys have a completely separate separation of responsibilities or he's also an ID designer? Yeah. Um, so he's actually a mechanical engineer mm -hmm. by trade. So we work both in product development, but I think it's a 
pretty complementary skill set to have for an industrial designer. Industrial designers focus a lot on the top end, front end of you know design, strategy, branding, how things look, how things feel, how things are used. Engineering on the other end is like making it work, making it manufacturable. And so I think just kind of like meshing that front end and back end just made a lot of sense. You know, so he's my partner with the watch business, right? Like I could design this concrete watch, but I did not know how the hell to make it, right? Or how to mix the concrete or anything like that. And so Mike was definitely like super pivotal on, you know, critical on just like how to how to get this thing made, right? And dealing with like a lot of suppliers in China. So yeah, super great partner. Got it. So yeah, you mentioned early on you have a brand called Aggregate Watches, and then you have your design house Hatch Duo. Mm-hmm. Did they these two just start at the same time, or one before the other? What was the timeline for that? No. So uh, they started at different timelines. Aggregate Watches was was something I've always wanted to start. Like I wanted to start some kind of product line or or accessories fashion line, and I've always been into watches, and so that was like the thing like when I was we were expecting our first child I was like you know here's my chance to get out of tech for a little bit and try you know this this passion project of mine and see if it can make any money right and so we we basically created this watch concrete watch no one wanted to produce it because they're like who makes concrete watches right all the factories are like we already make watches <laughs> just choose yeah just choose, choose one choose, choose one, right? whatever design yeah that's gonna look good and we'll just you know private label for you yeah instead of making a custom one yeah we were super stubborn and we, we ended up um, we ended up still prototyping it and found a factory that was like okay since you guys prototyped it maybe we can you know mass produce this and then yeah we got on kickstarter i think we raised sixty five thousand dollars, really modest amount but it was enough to at least get that first run going what was the startup cost to even jump into that so each of us threw in like 10k each um just which honestly was not, not enough at all but that was like 10k of like okay here's enough to kind of like fund hiring some people to like help us so actually we pulled in one of my old colleagues alexander burton who's awesome and i still you know kind of work with her sometimes now but she kind of came in on the marketing end because she's run like million dollar Kickstarter campaigns and mm-hmm. things like that of that nature. And we're just like, okay, we're good at design and engineering. We don't know what the hell we're doing on the marketing end. So she kind of helped with that. And so we're really bootstrapped, really lean. And we basically just did it, you know, by sure will of you know persistence, honestly. And just launched it and see where it could go, right? Yeah, we launched it and then yeah, we ended up you know, garnering some distributors off of Kickstarter as well. So watches.com and then a few other design websites were like distributing our watch. Um, and then GQ and High Snobiety, that kind of publications and stuff were great for us as well. We talked about um, watches. So we'll, we'll talk about the design, the design firm, like basically success point, yeah. the growing pains and then Sure. You know, we don't have to probably talk about your guys' merger part. To this. Yeah, that's probably what I will leave that up. You have aggregate watches. You guys launched it on Kickstarter. And then it's it, you guys got a lot of publications. And basically, it's just been an ongoing business that you guys have on the side, right? Yeah, um, it's been an ongoing business. But I mean, I think uh, it's definitely not as uh, successful as everyone thinks it to be. And that's kind of actually what led into our design firm. So. You know, after all that nice high of success of like, hey, we're funded on Kickstarter, we're on all these publications, we kind of, we, sh- we quickly realized that all that money that we made had to go back into the business, right? 
And so meanwhile, we're still have to pay bills and rent and all these other things that, you know, we somehow magically thought that we were going to make enough money to, to do that. And, and that wasn't true. And so, you know, basically things got real and we had to freelance a little bit to start to, you know, pay some bills. So Mike and I were basically taking, you know, our own, you know, he was doing his own thing. I was doing my own thing on the side of like, I was doing industrial design jobs for freelance. He was doing some engineering jobs. We were even door dashing, even mm -hmm. at night, we were taking calls in China. And we're like, well, since we're taking calls, we might as well just make some extra cash. So it was like, what, like minimum wage plus like the tips that we would get. Yeah. So it was rough. And, and to say the least, like, I think our families, like our wives, like felt it too. So it was kind of a rough time. There was even a point in time where Mike and I were like, should we just split up? We'll still hold aggregate, but should we just split up and go back to work? Because like, dude, like we got bills to pay, man. Mm -hmm. um, family to take care of. Family to take care of and things like that. And our runway was like, you know, it was running down. And so, yeah, it was, it was this point in time where there's a lot of discussions, a lot of fights, things like that. Between your partners and even the wives. Yeah, it was rough. It was rough to say the least. If I were to put myself in your position and... And it's tough for me, right? And everyone's circumstances are different. You know, you'll, you'll tell a lot of people, like, if you want this really badly and, and someone tells you that, yeah, like, if, if you really want to pursue the side business or side hustle business that you're building out, yeah, go DoorDash, go Uber, go drive a Lyft, right? And then, but then, like, nah, right? I feel like 99% of the time, people will be like, okay, yeah, that's not worth it. I'm just going to yeah. continue working in my full-time job. Yeah. Right? So what... What made you guys decide like that is okay or it's not like were you embarrassed if people were like, you know, this guy's gone off to launch a brand, but then all of a sudden he's, you know, just doing DoorDash. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is funny. It was a funny thing because it was like, well, you're an industrial designer. You were working on Sonos and stuff. Why are you DoorDashing? You can just go freelance. And the thing that people don't realize is like, yeah, I could freelance, but it's like, you know, sometimes, I don't know if anyone who's listening has been a freelancer, but sometimes you're not getting paid necessarily like what you're worth or the sales cycle. It doesn't happen like as quickly as you'd want it to. And so you just have to, you know, like, especially when you have a kid, like things just get real and you just need the cash flow. But I think just having the support of our, our families and, and, and my wife in particular, it was just like, dude, don't quit. I know it's, it's, you know, it's very easy to just go back to work and, and do that. Just don't do it. Just we'll figure it out. And so I think like just through persisting, you know, jobs started to land in our lap on the design side because people just started to realize like, oh, John is no longer employed uh, by someone. So can you do this, you know, independent design project for me? And those projects started to get larger and larger. I started to learn a little bit more about how to charge. And so soon enough, we started to get clients like Bed Bath & Beyond, Logitech, um, and then even like startups here in Silicon Valley. And uh, Mike and I were like, dude, let's just start another company because like it was getting too big for just the two of us. We were basically doing all these design projects ourselves and it was doing well. And we we're like, well, we have to run the watch business too. And there's only two of us. And so, we LLC'd in 2018 for Hatch Duo, and then we started to hire subcontractors, interns, all that stuff to kind of, you know, help, you know, build the team and, and be able to take on the work that we were getting. And I think like that was a huge turning point for us because we realized like, oh, here we are trying to be entrepreneurs ourselves. And there's plenty of people like us out there that also need design help 
that we can serve immediately and and charge good money for it and, and make a living out of it. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of how we got started on the path of Hatch Joe. That is an amazing journey. And I'm very glad that you can share the story with us. I mean, for those listening out there, I've come over to visit John at his office and we're recording inside his office and they already, you guys just recently moved in here, right? It's a huge facility. How big is this place? It's 20,000 square feet. Uh, luckily we're, we're our little design area that we were situated in is, you know, a smaller portion of that. But yeah, we started off in my garage really and my, our, our apartments really. And in the past, you know, three years, it's been from apartment to then a small little studio in Sunnyvale on top of Happy Lemon next to some insurance agents and, you know, a hair salon to now what, you know, more people are used to seeing when they see a design firm, right? Yeah. So, it's basically a, a new chapter in your guys' life. No more happy lemon to keep the guys afloat and sugar, getting the sugar rush, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm very excited that, you know, we got to meet even before this, understand your story. And this is why, exactly why I wanted to share it with, you know, my audience and just understanding the struggles that you've gone through, the sacrifices, the deciding point of, you know, leaving a career and even recognizing that even when you did jump out, there was a lot of struggle in between too. So thank you so much, John, for jumping on here on The Y Factor. And we'll look forward to chatting with you again and, and see where you are in the near future. Man, thanks so much, Eric. Thanks for having me. All right, awesome. Take it easy, guys, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you so much for listening until the very end. You can find more information about my guest on the website at whyfactorpodcast.com. I'll provide any links and promo codes that were mentioned in the interview. A full transcription of the interview is also available on the website. Share with your friends and tune in next time for another episode of The Y Factor.